a minimum equipment list is <clears throat> something that's provided to operators via the via the FARs, uh, in particular, you know, Part 91 or Part 135 operator to operate in aircraft with inoperative instruments or equipment. And, and that, uh, that document material that you compile to put that list together, uh, so to speak, of, of instruments or equipment you could have inoperative really constitutes that that overall minimum equipment list, the MEL, just provides an operator with that ability to operate with an operative equipment. That's NBAA Maintenance Committee Chairman Greg Hamelink, who also serves as Senior Manager for Flight Operations and Maintenance at Stryker Corporation. And that seems like a fairly easy-to-understand definition of the minimum equipment list that's included with nearly all business aircraft flying today. However, there's quite a bit more behind that seemingly simple definition, and with that comes the potential for errors that may compromise your flight operation's safety and its regulatory compliance. Also joining us is Maintenance Committee member Elaine Carabasis, Director of Aviation Maintenance for Encompass Health. Elaine, Greg just gave us the definition of an MEL, but what is an MMEL? The Master Minimum Equipment List, the MMEL, is created by the aircraft manufacturer and it is approved by certification authorities such as the FAA or EASA. EASA, for those of those that don't know, is the European Aviation Safety Agency. The MMEL is used as a reference by operators to create their own MEL which will permit the dispatch and the operation of an aircraft with one or more inoperative equipment or unavailable systems function while maintaining an acceptable level of safety. But here are some comparisons between the two. So, like I said, the MMEL is created by the manufacturer of the aircraft, and that is the aircraft fleet, such as Gulfstream, Boeing, Textron, so what that, is, that includes the equipment and accessories available for the aircraft model. The MEL is created by the operator for your specific type of aircraft. So it might be, for example, say you just bought a G700, but that G700 serial number 7 that you own is not the same as serial number 15. So you're going to customize your MEL for the equipment that you have on your aircraft. And some other items is dispatch. This is great for dispatchability. So the MEL must be performed with a certain prescribed periods. Commonly, they're between so many days, like between 1 and 30 days, depending on the operation requirement. But the MEL permits the operator to assess and the impact of the operations. Um, while operating aircraft with the system functions or components that are inoperative. The main other thing is that the MEL must be as restrictive as or even more so than the MMEL and must be approved. Both must be approved by the operator's um, national airworthiness authorities. Again, when you have both of these, you still have to have a letter of authorization. And we could get into that a little more, but at this time, those letter of authorization is either going to be a D95 or a D195. Rounding out our panel today is Tom Atzert of Leading Edge Aviation Technical Services, which provides customized operator MELs. Tom, I suspect there may also be some regulatory differences when you're talking about Part 91, Part 135, and other categories when it comes to applicability of MELs. Is that the case? It's a complex question. The, the simple answer is, is yes. 
uh, for certificated operators, including Part 135, uh, as well as Part 121, 125, and even Part 91 subpart K fractional ownerships, uh, those author- operators are authorized to operate using an FAA-approved MEL in accordance with Operations Specification D95, M-Spec D95 for uh, subpart K. For Part 91 operators, uh, they must apply for an FAA letter authorization or an LOA uh, to operate uh, using an MEL in accordance with uh, either D095 uh, LOA uh, where the operator uses the MMEL as their MEL in conjunction with uh, some uh, required elements that are listed in that LOA or um, in accordance with D195 LOA, which requires an FAA-approved MEL, which is similar to a Part 135 MEL. The approval process for those two types of MELs are, are similar. Um, whereas uh, the application for Part 91 D095 LOA using MMEL as an MEL does not require FA inspector review or official approval of any of the required elements. Because that MMEL comes directly from the manufacturer. Well, it's a difference in the approval process. D095 simply says, you know what, here's the FA approved MMEL. It's the baseline Uh, allow the operators to use it as their MEL. This gets kind of into the weeds here, but it was a way, since there are so many uh, Part 91 operators out there, the volume of work uh, required for the FAA to review and approve all those MELs was uh, basically a daunting task. They uh, sort of invented this D095 LOA process to alleviate some of that work. Uh, That's all under coming under question now, and and maybe that'll be covered in a future uh, podcast. But but there are differences. These uh, elements that that go along with D095, like the MMEL preamble and the definition and the MNO procedures, all those wrapped uh, together. Um, and and submitted as part of the D095 application uh, make up the MEL that's authorized under D095. So a little bit different than uh, the D195. Um, But back to the the original question, to answer more specifically, uh, the CFRs govern. And 14 CFR uh, 91-213 governs uh, Part 91 operations with inoperative equipment, Uh, while 14 CFR 135.179 governs that for Part 135 operations. Uh, The regulations, those specific regulations are uh, similar and both require an approved MEL. However, uh, there are some allowances in 91.213 for operations without an MEL for certain types of aircraft, uh, and there are some related specific provisions. I will add, though, that those allowances do not apply to turbine-powered airplanes. Coming up, we'll discuss the importance of ensuring your aircraft's MEL remains up to date. But first, a word from our sponsor, Whiting Aviation Park in Santa Rosa County, Florida. Ready to grow your business? Whiting Aviation Park can help you take off. Here, you can develop up to 200 acres for manufacturing, maintenance, repair, or overhaul operations adjacent to NAS Whiting Field. 
with access to its 6,000 foot runway. You'll be able to reach high and go far from Santa Rosa County, Florida, home to a large, skilled, military-trained workforce. If you're serious about growing your business, learn more about the incentives waiting for you at whitingaviationpark.com. We're back now with Elaine Carabasis, Tom Atzert, and Greg Hamelink, and our discussion of minimum equipment lists for business aircraft. Greg, before the break, Tom mentioned certain allowances to deviate from an aircraft's MEL or to operate without one. Can you tell us a bit more about that and some other examples of when it may still be allowable to fly without equipment listed on the MEL? There's kind of a a series of things that are in the regulations that that provide you kind of that list of what you can and can't do. So, for example, the instrument couldn't be part of, uh, you know, VFR Day certificated instrument you know, that, that could be inoperative. There's some very um, unique scenarios there that might allow you to operate with inoperative equipment without an MEL, but I would say, you, you know, it's probably fewer and far between than an aircraft that actually has an MEL. So, you know, if we're moving into a category of aircraft, uh, and Elaine mentioned this earlier, you, you know, a, a turbine-powered aircraft that's above 12,500 pounds, okay, now you've got an MMEL to, to reference You've now, as an operator, taken that, in her example, that Gulfstream, and specifically created a minimum equipment list for that aircraft, for your operation, for that serial-numbered aircraft, based on the equipment that's installed. And instrument X is an operative. Uh, let's say it's a navigation uh, a piece of equipment, so you're going to go into Chapter 34 uh, ATA code and, and find and see if that particular piece of instrument uh, can be operated in an inoperative state uh, while you're operating the aircraft, and you would then MEL it uh, accordingly. Tom mentioned in your in your LOA or in your package, you've got to now create um, those things, your maintenance and operation procedures, and, and then you're going to document that, what you've done, either from a maintenance perspective and or operationally, uh, maybe what your flight crew members have to do with that instrument being an operative. Tom, anything to add to that? I'll just uh, kind of make a few statements, Some of some of which are, uh, paraphrasing uh, the MEL preamble, but essentially what we're talking about here is cases where on the airplane there are various levels of redundancy designed into the aircraft and um, operating that airplane with uh, every system installed operative is just not necessary. And so an acceptable level of safety can be maintained when certain items are in-op and not available for dispatch. Uh, so some of these things, uh, you know, there's some good examples like, uh, just for example, a multi-channel system where uh, a single channel uh, meets the basic certification requirements and redundant channels are installed uh, to either enhance operational or performance parameters or, or meet certain dispatch reliability goals. So think air conditioning, fuel, hydraulic communication, uh, or navigation, or even lighting systems where a a single system meets the certification requirements, such as uh, you really o- maybe only need one pack uh, to pressurize the airplane, but the airplane has two, or there are multiple fuel pumps in a in a tank, or multiple hydraulic pumps on a system, and so the airplane can be operated safely with uh, one of those in op, and you still have uh, an operable pack or pump to run all the systems. Uh, same thing for comms or navs where you have uh, you know, dual radios, but uh, you can meet the, the nav requirements uh, with a single system. Or even simply uh, nav lights, 
you know, position light bulbs where the, the OEM installs two bulbs for the green light or the red light or the white light. One of those bulbs goes out. You still meet the certification requirements. You can fly at night. Good to go. Elaine, how does an MEL get updated? Is that something the operator can do? Actually, the manufacturer is the one that usually updates the MMEL. And when the manufacturer updates their MMEL, it's a good thing for you to review and update your MEL all at the same time. Also, there's also policy letters that might come out that you might need to refer to in any changes regarding your MEL or MMEL. So make sure you keep up to date with the policy letters and also make sure you keep up to date with the aircraft manufacturer of whatever aircraft you may have and make sure that you keep up with those revisions changes because it's really important because something that might have been in your MMEL before may not be in it today. And if you're flying with equipment um, or an outdated MMEL, you might be flying not the right way. I think Elaine makes some good points. You know, you've you've got to regularly look at that. I just got a notification for one of our aircraft a week ago for a a new revision that's that's upcoming, and it's open right now for uh, for public comment. So you may have some forewarning, you know, in that uh, that revision coming around, and you may be able as an operator, you know, provide some comment back to the FAA on any any changes they might make there. But again, to Elaine's point, you want to make sure that that information is the most up-to-date and correct on your end. And the difference that Tom referred to either uh, even earlier on, on a D-195 versus a D-095 and that process of what you might have to do to update that, what interaction you might have to have with your your uh, FISDO representative to get that update done can be a difference. So D-095, I would say, would probably be a maybe a little more straightforward. You're really revising it on, on your end as an operator and don't have to have that oversight of the of the FISDO versus a D-195. Okay, now I've got to make that those changes um, on my MEL based off a of revision to the MMEL and, and then uh, have that reviewed by the FISDO. So um, it, it pays to to kind of try to look ahead, work with your manufacturer, keep keep an eye on what your manufacturer is doing as any, any revisions that may come out and kind of try to get ahead of those. Thanks, Greg. So, Tom, what are the risks in flying with an outdated or incomplete MEL? Well, non-compliance that could result in enforcement action is the obvious answer. But whenever MEL changes are made in accordance with some safety recommendation or mandate, perhaps an AD, and then if they uh, those changes were not incorporated in an MEL, then... An acceptable level of safety would not be achieved for dispatch in that related non-standard uh, configuration. Um, so, you know, there, there are some, some safety risks. However, uh, that said, I suspect that the most common occurrence on something like this would be uh, when an inspector does a ramp check, uh, reviews the operator's MEL and finds it out of compliance. Then enforcement action could take place if any deferrals had been made after the point at which the MEL became outdated. So uh, I suspect, and uh, Greg and Elaine, you probably back me up on that. Uh, there, there's probably uh, not, not, not a lot of cases out there where the airplane metal was bent or people got hurt because of something like that. But I'm sure there are non-compliance uh, issues due to a ramp check. Elaine? You don't want to operate with any incomplete or outdated documents on board your airplane. And I'm just going to give an example of some things that could happen. So 
few years ago, the MNOs changed on the MMEL for the NAV databases where you cannot fly with expired databases. Another example is if you have optional equipment on board your airplane. Make sure that you have the equipment listed that you need on board your airplane when you're doing your MEL. And there's a lot of good companies out there that write MELs, and also the manufacturer also has programs too. So there are people out there, so reach out. It's not just for technicians. The pilots are always on the MMELs, MELs as well, and need to be educated as well as maintenance team. And Greg, what message would you like our audience to take with them from this discussion today? In regards to MELs, you obviously have the MMEL, the master, but there's a lot of other pieces that really fit into this equation to develop your MEL. There's a preamble, there's different policy letters you need to include. Um, There may even be some training that you may want to do, you know, within your particular flight operation so that everybody's on the same page, whether it's maintenance or, or flight operations. So, There's so much more to an MEL than just printing off that master minimum equipment list off the FAA website. Um, It's really taking that next step and following what your LOA tells you or requires you to do to really fully develop an MEL. So there's a lot of what I would call some moving pieces to it to create a a real healthy MEL for your particular operation, for your particular aircraft. And and to Elaine's uh, point earlier, you know, that MMEL is kind of that fleet specific, but you really got to drill down to, to your specific aircraft when, when it comes to uh, developing an MEL. To learn more about minimum equipment lists and for the latest guidance on their use in business aviation, visit nbaa.org forward slash maintenance. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Thanks again to our sponsor, Whiting Aviation Park. And remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts in the App Store, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, including by asking Alexa or another connected device, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock, and thanks for listening to Flight Plan. <laughs>